Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Dr. Melissa Gonzalez. She is a clinical psychologist and a doctoral level board certified behavior analyst with specialized experience working with individuals with developmental differences, including autism and pediatric feeding disorders. Her professional passion is to create and nurture systems that increase access to collaborative interdisciplinary care for children and families. She's the clinical therapy director at a nonprofit organization in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Siskin Children's Institute. The mission of Siskin Children's Institute is to improve the quality of life for children with special needs and their family. Prior to her move to Chattanooga, Dr. Gonzalez was faculty at Kennedy Krieger Institute in Baltimore, Maryland, and assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Gonzalez has experience training externs, predoctoral interns, and postdoctoral fellows in psychology and applied behavior analysis, as well as precepting medical residents. Dr. Gonzalez has presented and published research on various topics related to the behavioral assessment and treatment of skill deficits and behavioral excesses in individuals with feeding concerns, autism spectrum disorders, and other developmental differences. Hope you all enjoy this episode. This is such a great episode just about interdisciplinary care and how we can really work so well as a team to just get the best outcomes for our kids and our patients. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old-school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. 
Good morning, Melissa. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, it's going to be a great conversation. So before we get started, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I'm a clinical psychologist and board certified behavior analyst who specializes in working with children and families with pediatric feeding disorders. Um, and so I've had the opportunity to have really great opportunities for training and have worked in um, inpatient settings, outpatient settings, interdisciplinary teams, and uh, really large intensive feeding program settings. And currently I am in a community that doesn't have a lot of resources. And so, you know, really starting to understand some of the complexities that families experience uh, when they don't have all those resources available. So really excited just to talk um, with you about the impact this has with families and and really what great professionals can do to support families uh, when they're running into difficulties with feeding. Yeah, awesome. And I know, you know, I'm, I'm sure you work with a lot of speech pathologists, you know, as as this field is growing, as pediatric feeding disorders are becoming, you know, we're becoming more and more aware of them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm sure you work close with SLPs too, and that's, you know, why you're here. Definitely. Yeah. So I, you know, uh, pediatric feeding disorders, I always like to kind of discuss it as a team sport. Uh, and so uh, one of my necessary teammates is a speech path um, because we, we definitely, you know, feeding problems are complex and you really need multiple eyes, multiple viewpoints to really get a sense of, of what's going on and, and make sure that we have a good solid plan uh, for the child and family uh, so they can progress. So awesome. yes, necessary team member is a speech yes. path. All right. So where should we start? I guess, you know, I'd love to hear you know, I guess sort of why you want to, you know, what what you wish SLPs would know about pediatric feeding disorders. And yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I've had the opportunity to work some re- with some really wonderful speech paths, and I've learned so much from them throughout the years. And I think, I think one thing that's really cool about talking with folks of different disciplines who work in this area is to really be able to reflect and think about how can we both bring our expertise to the table and really work together to be able to leverage a plan that makes sense for the family and that's that's helpful for them. I think also really thinking about uh, family-centered care in terms of how can we have the family partner with us and kind of lead where they feel like things should go. And so I think those are the two biggest areas that I'm most passionate about in terms of partnering with families and really listening to them and figuring out how we can help them uh, through this barrier, but also um, how can we work together as disciplines across disciplines who may view things a little bit differently, right? But how how can we work together and really support this family for them to feel confident and move forward? Yeah, good. Yeah. And that's a great point. And I'd love to really dive into that sort of what what do you bring to the table versus what an SLP brings to the table? Yeah. So I think, you know, one thing that's really interesting is I've had the opportunity, I guess I should say opportunity to really work with insurance companies. And it's it's a lot of times, um, and even referring providers, they say, oh, there's a, a pediatric feeding problem, speech, right? Um, there's a code that's set up for speech to be able to see children with feeding and and rightly so, right? Like there's a, a lot of really great training that speech paths go through in terms of anatomy and making sure that children are safe for eating and developing swallowing skills and, and chewing skills. Uh, which is definitely necessary for many children who have pediatric feeding disorders. I think what uh, my experience brings to the table is some of the complexities that come with that. And so oftentimes children 
have an early difficult experience that kind of sets the stage for their feeding trajectory to go off path, right? Um, that they don't learn that feeding uh, results in comfort or in good bodily sensations of, of satiety. They, they actually learn the opposite, right? They learn that this is an aversive experience. And so there's some learning that happens early on. And even though uh, we may be able to address the medical issue or the early developmental complication that set that that trajectory off off course. That learning occurred, and not only is this child starting to associate kind of not pleasant experiences with eating, but their caregivers who are caring for them are also associating not pleasant experiences with feeding their child. And so uh, there, there's quite a bit in terms of the dynamics between caregivers and, and the children um, that oftentimes needs to be addressed in order for the family to move forward. And so, you know, as, as many of your listeners know, feeding problems are very, very complex. And when there's a problem, uh, it may start with a very specific impetus for that problem, but it very quickly snowballs, right? Because the child isn't practicing the skills that they need to, to further their skill development. So you have a lack of skill development. Uh, you may have some medical issues and pain associated with eating and then the, the caregiver dynamics, right? So it, it, and the longer this goes on, the more complex it gets uh, and likely the more team members you need at the table to really be able to support that family to get through some of those concerns. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure if, if you know, Melissa, I have a son with special needs that actually had a pretty severe feeding disorder, um, which is, you know, it's it's interesting because I sort of feel like I'm at an identity crisis in my career right now because I've, I've focused my entire career on working with geriatrics and skilled nursing facilities with swallowing disorders. And then I have this child with a pediatric feeding disorder that I have so much information to share, really so much insight to share. So I'm, I'm really pulled in two different directions at this point, but yeah. all that to say, you know, I really love how you phrase that in that, you know, sometimes, you know, for these kiddos, their body signals are confused between it's not satiety, it's an aversive reaction. And I just, gosh, I don't ever want to relive those days, but I, I vividly remember those days of like, you know, he just, the thought of putting anything towards his mouth is just repulsive, you know, and he had horrible reflux and he was vomiting all the time. And so obviously we had those medical issues, you know, I love, like I said, I love what you just said, like there is the medical issues, but then there are those other aspects to get past too. And, and I'd love if you could sort of elaborate a little bit about what that looks like for you. What, what do you guys do as far as therapy treatment? I, I say you guys, that wasn't a, a nice thing to say, but yeah, your profession sort of takes it from there. And I'd love if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Right. So I, I think my specialized training as a behavior analyst specifically with pediatric feeding. So I, I, I guess first I want to say that I think not all clinical psychologists, not all behavior analysts have specific training in feeding. So I think that you would need to make sure that you find someone to enter your team who has some experience and background and kind of knows uh, what they can offer and where their limitations are. And that could be said exactly for SLPs as well. Exactly. So yes, thank you. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just qualifying that. But there's a lot of, of learning uh, 
information related to how we learn and also ways that we can help children reassociate positive experiences with feeding and also help caregivers kind of work through barriers that they're experiencing. I mean, it sounds like you, I could, you know, I have the opportunity to be able to see you on the screen, but I can see kind of this visceral reaction whenever you're talking about that. And I think that totally makes sense because as a caregiver, the one thing that you, that you're, that that you kind of think before you have a child is I should be able to feed this child, right? I should be able to clothe the child. I should be able to shelter this child. I should be able to feed this child. And when that doesn't go well or go right, that, you know, will really shake your world. I think the most maddening part about that is just all the people that are like, they'll figure it out. They won't let themselves starve. All kids eat. And I'm like, then you try to feed this child. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, and, and I was about to go there and I know this is a little off, for your question, but we'll come back to your question after. But, you know, in in eating and feeding a family, you know, a a mother feeding their child, there are so many cultural assumptions that we make about the right way to do it. If it's not going right, well, it must be something the mother didn't do right. Or, Or you're just being anxious. Or children will eat when they get hungry. And I think oftentimes we see that that isn't the case, right? Particularly for children who are have these early experiences that have set that trajectory off kilter. You know, I, I, I think it's important for folks um, when you are working with families with pediatric feeding disorders and also talking with other referring providers or other folks who are in the field is to make a distinction between picky eating and pediatric feeding disorder. Oh, right. Good. So, you. you know, I think, I think that there, there are some, yes, there are some developmental changes that happen uh, where, you know, many children go through a phase where there's neophobia, where they're hesitant to try new foods. They may be more selective. They may want to stick with the same foods consistently. And that usually starts around 18 months of age, and it may go up to three or four peaks, uh, and it can be uh, difficult. But there's some very big distinctions between that and a pediatric feeding disorder. So it might be helpful for us to just define who, what population are we talking about and who are we not talking about? Um, because I think some of that, those kind of typical recommendations, oh, they'll eat when they get hungry, I think maybe apply to one, may apply to one category, but don't necessarily apply to the other. So let's define that first as we kind of continue on our conversation. So yes, yeah, so there is kind of a, a, a typical developmental phase where you see children who are hesitant to try new foods, maybe want to have kind of a similar type of diet. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I really want the, these foods. I think that there's some, one thing to note is that is pretty, could be pretty adaptive, right? If you think about when we were out being foragers and hunters, it was probably pretty adaptive for children to not eat, put everything in their mouths, right? And children, um, you know, during around that time, children are moving around, they're, are, um, they're, they're more mobile. And so evolutionarily, that probably makes a lot of sense, right? And so the difference between a picky eater and a child with pediatric feeding disorders is a picky eater is usually transient. We usually don't see weight concerns, and we usually don't have concerns about their nutrient intake. For pediatric feeding disorder, what we're seeing is atypical consumption uh, where there's concerns in medical 
medical domains or nutritional domains or skill development domains and psycho psychosocial domains, and that this is something that is more significant of an impact for the child or and or the family. I think one thing that's been really great and uh, the uh, good day in 2019 um, and and colleagues all um, associated with feeding matters put out a consensus definition. And so finally, we can all across disciplines refer to the same thing uh, and really, really talk about that. And so I think that is an article worth reading just to be able to draw some distinctions between what are we talking in terms of that typical developmental increased pickiness around those ages versus a pediatric feeding disorder. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yes. Okay. So back to your question. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so how do, how do I work with that? Right. So how do I work with that? So first off, I think it depends and it varies for every child. Right. Um, I think every child is starting at a different point. And so uh, my approach is very individualized. And I like to make sure that I have a good sense of what the developmental history is and that I also have some opportunities to see the child consume foods or drinks or whatever they're taking in, if they're taking anything in orally to see where their shrinks and then also look to see what, what does it look like when it's something more challenging, right? And then at that point, kind of determining how, how do we move forward beyond that? Again, I think I am a big proponent of interdisciplinary teams and having the right people at the table. I've had the opportunity to train and work with some really great folks of different disciplines. And so I have some comfort levels and areas just based on, on my experience. And so depending on what is the presenting concern or where the challenges are and also where the family's priorities are, I think really thinking about how can we set up a routine, a daily routine that is not very stressful, but there's clear expectations that the family can practice. And then as we're successful with that, how can we slowly push beyond the child's comfort zone in a very gradual way, right? And and really having the family and caregiver be part of that process. And so whatever I'm working on within the clinic session, the family is either in the room with me or observing very closely nearby. And then I'm always thinking, what piece of this or what part of this can I have the family practice between my outpatient settings? Because in the end, it it doesn't matter if it happens with me, right? It needs to happen with the caregivers. So I can't tell you how many families I've I've heard who've said, yeah, well, we've been, you know, we've been going to therapy for years now. And uh, yeah, he'll eat all kinds of foods and therapy, but you won't eat anything for me, right? And so it's really that focus on how can we have this dynamic between the child and caregiver? Yes, we may need to work on some skill development, but we also need to make sure that we are coming up with routines that can be implemented successfully in the home and that it's doable for the family and not everybody's ready to tear their hairs out and cry, right, at the end of the meal. Yeah. What what do some of those what do some of those look like? What do some of those habits and patterns look like? So I, I think it really depends on what the child is presenting with, but it's not uncommon for me to to say, hey, let's just start practicing sitting at the table. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um yeah. so that that might be one and, and using some strategies in terms of determining when is the child 
what is their child's tolerance for that at this point? And how can we gradually increase that? It may or may not include food in the beginning. Once they're tolerating that and we have some good routines with the child and with the family, I'm a big proponent of using timers or other cues to let the child know when that routine is over or when there's a break from that. And then maybe gradually adding some uh, not only child-directed feeding, depending on the child's skill level and age, but also parent-directed feeding. So are there opportunities for the child, for the parent to present a spoon or, and sometimes we might start out with empty spoons, right? I think one thing, and I'd be interested to hear your perspective as a parent of a child who has this type of concern. You know, I, as I talk with different disciplines, sometimes we have very strong convictions about the right way to do feeding therapy and the wrong way to do feeding therapy. But based on my experience, I feel like it really depends based on the child, the family, what are their goals. And anytime, and, and myself included, I think at times I, I probably in the years past, I may have been very, had really strong convictions about this is the right way. This is the wrong way. But as I gain more experience and work with more families, I realized um, it all oftentimes really, really depends on what's going on with that child. So, you know, I've seen some therapists say, you know, we should just let the child direct the whole meal. And I think in some cases, maybe that's really helpful. Uh, In other cases, it might not be helpful at all because maybe that's not leading to where we need to be in terms of the getting the child's health and nutrition. And I'm curious for you as as a caregiver, you know, what has been your experience in terms of of those types of recommendations that you've been given and, and kind of, you know, have you experienced pretty open strategies or have you found folks having really strong convictions as this is right, this is wrong? Yeah. Yeah. So one thing I love what you said in the beginning that really sort of perked my ears up was, you know, the family centered approach and anybody that listens to me, you know, I, I didn't realize my passion for evidence-based practice until I was thrown into it with my own child. And yes, thinking of the family's values and how this looks with the family. And I just remember, I think we had, we had two different therapists when my son was younger. And like you said, they were very steadfast in their ways and, and their ways did not mesh with our family dynamic at all. Yes. And so I just was feeling like so inadequate, like I'm the worst mother because I can't implement these strategies, but they just don't work with our family. And it was really, and I don't, I don't want to say anything negative about the therapist because this was what she knew was best, you know, and we had a really good personal relationship, but I just felt so defeated because I could not, I couldn't get my child to do that. It didn't work with our family dynamic. It was really tough on me and my husband. And that really was like a turning point for me that like, that was really where the whole like patient experience, patient preferences part of evidence-based practice just like hit me like a ton of bricks because I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like this is not working for us. Like I don't care what the evidence says. I don't care what this clinician's experience is. This is not working for our family. Therefore it's not, it's not working. (laughs) And and I had to sort of like come to that breaking point before I realized, you know, and it it very well could have been a me problem and, and, you know, not a her problem, but from that point forward, I just have become much more vocal 
and I don't even want to say vocal, but just upfront with sort of what our fi- what our family dynamic looks like, what my son has been able to show us that he's capable of, what he really struggles with, what he shuts down with. Mm-hmm. And I think being very vulnerable and being upfront about that stuff right away has had all the change in the world. And we like right now we my son is at the most amazing school ever. He's got, you know, feeding therapists. He has wonderful behavioral specialists that work with him. Um, and, and it is a really cool dynamic to see sort of what the SLP recommends, what the, I call them the behavioral girls. I know they have you know a, a fancier name than that, but it's what I can. So I apologize. Um, Cause there's, there's a team of six of them that, that yeah. rotate with. Well, there's the behavioral girls, there's the SLP. And then there's me that says, yes, that's great. Or no, like he won't really do that. But you know, we're all in a group chat and we just have a really good, it's, it's such a strong team dynamic. And, and I'm so grateful for that because it's the only way we've seen so much progress with him in probably the last year than we had in like the first five years of his life. And I think it's just because we have such a team centered approach. There's, there's no egos. There's no, it's, it's my way. It's your way. It's just like, this is what's working today. How's that work for you guys? How's that look? And and I'm, I'm so grateful that we've gotten to this point because it's, it's working. So, right. No, I, I think you're exactly right. And so I, I think I, in terms of answering your original question is it all depends because I think every family brings different values and priorities and goals to the table. Every child brings different strengths to the table and, and figuring out how can we build on that in a way that is moving towards whatever that ultimate goal is. And also, and the key with that is really partnering with families and having them be part of that team. And then expanding that team by bringing in other disciplines as that child is needed. Um, So I think, yeah, uh, it it all depends on, on those variables. And I think it's, it's very important to ask those questions to kind of check your ego at the door, right? Because caregivers usually, you know, have a good sense of what's going to work for them. Yeah. I think, I think what's so funny sometimes too, is it's, it's really, I find it most humorous between me and my mother and the, the school team, because he will do things for me that he will not do for my mother. Mm-hmm. He will eat the most wonderful foods for my mother that he will not eat for me or the school. He will eat foods at the school that he will not eat at home. So it's just, it's a funny, like if someone were to read our group chat, it's really sort of humorous, but at the same token, it's, that's why the team approach is so, is so important because I just don't, I think that's the one, the one thing that really puzzles me is like, why is that? And I don't know if you can shed any yeah. light on that. You know, what, why would a kid have specific foods at home versus at grandma's house versus at school? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that there's probably a lot of reasons that could be occurring. So, so I guess the first thing I would think of from a very kind of systematic way, is there something specific that is different about the quality texture of that food? Um, you know, we all cook. You make fun of my cooking, Melissa. No, I'm not. He may, he may, he, yeah. You know, maybe your chicken is great, but your sweet potatoes not so much. No, no. So not so much how well it tastes, but more of the skill. I, I'm not sure how much your child has any skill uh, development issues related to chewing, but I think there can be for some children very subtle differences in terms of the viscosity of the food, the texture of the food, the firmness of the food can make a huge difference. Yeah. Um, another thing is the environment itself. How distracting is that environment? We see some children who eat great at school 
with peers. We see some children who do not eat well at school. Or how is that um, eating occasion set up? What is the dynamics in the room? Where are children seated? What else is going on? Right. All of those environmental cues and and can make an impact of whether or not a child will be more willing to try specific foods that may be more challenging. And that's all overlaid in the typical kind of up and down that you see with toddlers or or young children. How old is your is your son? So he's six. He's six. Okay. And I also have a two year old that throws all the challenges into the mix as well. Right. So you have kind of these um, environmental cues and factors that are going to interplay how a child's going to do and whether or not they're going to eat something that's very comforting to them versus uh, maybe a little bit more challenging, overlaid the typical, um, you know, inconsistency that you see with kids in eating. Right. And so it, it can be difficult sometimes to tease that apart. I think you know, we also see that sometimes caregivers, you are not only wearing a feeding hat, right? I'm the person who feeds my child, but you're wearing, I comfort my child. I'm the one that snuggles with them. I'm the one that reads teaching them. I'm the first teacher. I'm, you know, you're wearing lots of different hats, mm-hmm. you know, so all of these things can impact how a child is going to respond. Some children respond better to, to, to someone asking them to do something that's more difficult if they don't know them very well, right? Because they don't really know what what's going to happen if I don't do it, right? Um, I don't know if you've ever had your, your I know my own children, I have a, a five-year-old and a 10-year-old. And so, you know, it's funny, I'll hear teachers and say, oh, well, you know, she always does this. And then at home, my little girl is, is sometimes very different than that, right? So they, yeah. and that is typical, right? Um, because there's a comfort level with me. There's maybe a set history with me um, that's different than the teacher. And so all of those variables can really impact whether or not a child's going to respond in a certain way. The question is, is this a problem? Yeah. Right. So um, to what extent is it a problem? And to what extent do we need to factor to work on this? So while I just outlined all the reasons why this might be occurring, it doesn't mean that we can't work together to figure out some strategies to work through that and and really asking the question, well, you know, because your child will eat certain foods at home and with grandma and at school, the question is, well, are we happy with what they're eating at all these occasions, even though it's not the same foods? Yeah. Right. Yep. I would say yes. It's just, it's, it's just different. Yeah. 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 We, he's, he's worked with the same dietitian, gosh, since he was probably born. She's part of our family now, I swear. But, um, yeah, we're finally just making really good, consistent gains. So she's like, don't fix what you're doing. Don't touch it. Whatever you're doing is working. And so it's just really funny that we have a million different things going on, but it seems to be working. It seems to be working. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, you know, and it, and it's tough to, we just talked about the difference between typical picky eating and then pediatric feeding disorder, but it's also tough sometimes too, after you've been on this course of really focusing on feeding, counting calories, making sure that the child gets in, is knowing when to kind of pull back and be like, you know what? Kids and eating tend to be variable anyway, right? So when do I, when can I pull back from that Uber monitoring, Uber control, Uber focus, right? And just kind of relax. And so it's great to hear that you have a, a dietitian that you work with that's that's helping to 
give you cues of when you can just relax a little bit. And it's okay that there's some variability if if this child is is progressing in the way that they need to. Yeah, yeah. It, it's tough because my son is nonverbal, but very, you know, maybe it's a mother's intuition, but I, I, I understand his cues very well. You know, when we're eating, I understand when he loves something, when he wants more of something, when he hates that, when he wants something different, you know, I, I get it. My child. Right. Right. <laughs> um, well, I could, I could actually comment on that. You know, just as you know, your child's cues, right? Yeah. Your child also knows your cues. Mm-hmm. So your child knows when, Ooh, I just pressed a button. <laughs> you know ah, what I mean? Like, 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 yeah. and so it's, it's kind of, it's amazing of how perceptive children are to their caregivers. And, you know, you could just be having a, a great day and everything's relaxed. Your body's relaxed and things are going and your child may respond one way. You could be having a not so great day because we all have them, right? Um, could be a little bit more tense and that could impact whether or not how your child responds. Right. And so I think one thing that's always important too, I guess that would be after making sure that we're targeting the values and priorities of the family is also talking with the caregiver and, and really communicating that, yeah, this is hard. It is hard. This is really hard. It's probably one of the most stressful presentations of problems that I see in my clinical work because there's this cultural thought about what parents are supposed to be able to do. And so there's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of stress related to this. Oftentimes you have lots of different opinions and lots of different recommendations. And it's something that you're doing three, four times a day, Mm -hmm. every day. Right. And so I think having a conversation with the caregiver to just say, Hey, yeah, I get it. This is hard. How can we take that level down a little bit, right? And how can you also incorporate some routines within your day to help you kind of take yourself down a notch before we enter these, you know, enter these routines that historically not been working very well, have been stressful for you, have been maybe challenging for the child. And so not only is it an intervention in terms of trying to recondition feeding for the child, but also for the caregiver, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, what are some for acknowledging things? that. Yeah, 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 it's huge. Is that something that, do you sort of work with the family dynamic? Like, I, I really like what you're saying because I didn't, of course, I knew I was the one in charge, but I didn't realize how much of an impact the way I showed up or the way I changed my perspective on things affected the feeding that much. Like, if that makes sense, like it was a big burden for me to carry for a while to realize, like, I can fix a lot of things that, you know, I can't fix his, you know, poor oral motor skills. I can't fix his physical issues. I can't fix his cognitive delays, but I can change myself in the way that I show up every time. And having those realizations made a huge difference for us. And I'm just curious if that's something that, you know, I I know you work with the child, but how much do you focus on the parents and the family too? Yeah. The majority of my session is not just with the child, but it's caregiver coaching. Um, and, And also just figuring out, okay, how is that dynamic going? what expectations are we providing for the child? What is our expectations of ourselves as parents? You know what I mean? And, and how can we, how can we adjust those to make this a more pleasant experience for everybody? Uh, because when we're relaxed, right, things tend to go better. 
Um, and so really, really thinking about that. So I would say that a huge part of my intervention is that, and I think that is a role that a behavior analyst could, uh, behavior analyst or psychologist could really provide in terms of figuring out how can we make sure that whatever we're working in our session is transferring to home and how can we help set routines for the child and the family that are going to be reinforcing that there's something that they look forward to and are willing to do and feel successful with, right? And make progress. It may be gradual progress, but progress over time to where we feel like we're moving in a good direction and feel good about it and feel good about ourselves. Cool. I love that. Thank you for clarifying that, Melissa. Yeah. Anything else you want to, we covered a lot of great stuff. Yeah. I think we, we, we hit the family centered, we hit the interdisciplinary, I think overall awareness, like, so as folks are working with children who have this population, I think there's just very poor awareness of, of this concern. I don't know if you're aware, but there was an article put out in 2021 that said one in five and 35 children will have a pediatric feeding disorder, qualify for a pediatric feeding disorder before the age of five. That is huge. Nuts. That's, t- it's so crazy. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so I also have the opportunity to precept medical students who are in their training and fellowship. And our physicians and our frontline PCPs aren't getting a lot of specific instruction on this at all. Right. And so really thinking about how can we not only be good clinicians for the families and children that we serve, but how can we be good stewards and advocates in terms of making sure that there's increased awareness of this concern. And I think a lot of that has to do with having really good communication with our referring providers and uh, making sure that we are kind of creating our own little team within our community and, um, and communicating and sharing information and being okay with being outside of our comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. Which is hard. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I, I love, love, loved um, my son's pediatrician when he was, when, he was first born. We've since moved. And that's the only reason we're not with that pediatrician anymore. But um, we had some really interesting conversations about feeding disorders and swallowing and things like that. And, you know, he, my son was never on the growth curve the entire time we were under his care. So I think we left there around like three or three or four, you know, the pediatrician was like, he's growing, but he's on his own growth curve. You know, he's not on the traditional, you know, pediatrician's growth curve. He's on his, you know, my son's name's curve. And, um, what's you know, it was interesting because I, I would say, you know, I, I just know that he's, he's struggling with this. He has deficits in this. He, you know, we need to get some help in this. And he's like, yeah, I, I guess I didn't even realize those were issues, you know? And, and I, like I said, I love the pediatrician and he was very open and vulnerable. And he's like, you know, let me know how that works out. Let me know if you find anybody, you know, I know we have other kiddos that, um, you know, could benefit from this sort of therapy, but I really just love that he was open to learning more and hearing more, but I also was, he was such a brilliant, intelligent guy in so many other areas, but really knew nothing or not barely anything about feeding disorders. So, yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's amazing to me um, that, that, that isn't, especially for PCPs, because those are the folks who are going to pick up on some of these concerns. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, um, I feel like I'm, I'm like plugging this. I'm not, I don't mean to, but um, feeding matters. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They are, and they have some really great resources. And so I, I find myself as I'm kind of uh, working with 
medical residents really trying to disseminate some of those resources that they have available uh, and making sure that these future doctors who are going to be seeing our kids have systems and methods that are easy to be able to screen for some of these concerns and, and to dispel some of those notions of, oh, kids will eat when they get hungry. Um, because I, I, I think that they're, it's important that folks realize that there's a distinction there, yeah. Um, yeah. a very big distinction. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Melissa. Yeah. It's been a great conversation. I, I love this. Good, good. Yeah. Any any final thoughts? Anything else you want to share? I, I I think one thing. Just thinking, and I would imagine as a speech therapist who might be listening to this podcast that you may have children who are on your caseload and you're working with them and you're really focused on their skill development, their swallowing. I think one thing that's that I I that I'd like to suggest to I guess really encourage folks to think about how can we get caregivers practicing something? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm sure many folks do this really well, but I think it's sometimes hard, right? And it's not something that we're always have specific training in. How do I get this caregiver involved? How do I get this caregiver engaged? How how do I figure out how they can start to develop a routine at home? Because I, I, I have the opportunity to talk with a lot of families and this idea of, you know, we work with the child, we work with them here, but we really need to make sure that it's transferring home. And so just a reminder of it may not look as good at home, but where where's our starting point yeah. for home? I think one of the uh, things that's I, where things. Yeah, I've loved hearing is so many people saying that through doing all like the Zoom sessions and the teletherapy during COVID that they really got a glimpse into their student or their patient or their you know, kiddo's home life. And that can be very eye-opening as to maybe why they're not seeing the carryover. Um, and, and I just love when people say that because I'm just like, yes, like, yes, that's why we're doing what we're doing is we, the ultimate end goal is a home carryover, independent carryover of the family, of, of the child, of the patient, of the student, whoever, if you will. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm glad that people sort of had that window into the soul of, of the family. Yeah. 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 And, and, and to use it as a tool, you know, I think for many states, they're still reimbursing telehealth services. So use it as a tool, as an intermittent tool, if needed to provide those, those supports um, so that it can become part of children's daily routines because practice um, with these things go a long way, you know, exposure and practice and, you know, little bits of changes go a really long way in terms of making progress. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Melissa. I appreciate you so yeah. much. This is wonderful. Well, great. Well, thank you for having me. It's really great to to meet you and to be able to um, advocate for uh, for more awareness and, and disseminate information uh, so that increased service access is available for families. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit SwallowYourPridePodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.